Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Our special guest today is Paul Ingracia, Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Reuters News. Paul recently delivered the keynote at ABI's Canadian American Insolvency Symposium in Toronto, where he discussed the past, present, and future of the automobile industry. He's well suited to the task as the former Detroit bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal and winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the management crisis at GM, part of his more than 25 years covering the industry. His 2010 book, Crash Course, The Automobile Industry's Road from Glory to Disaster, is an insightful read on not only the car business, but the future of U.S. manufacturing. And we're delighted he can join us today. Welcome, Paul, to ABI Podcast. Uh, Sam, it's great to be with you. So as you observed uh, in Toronto uh, last month, the government-engineered Chapter 11s of Chrysler and GM in 2009 were highly controversial and costly. Uh, Steve Ratner, the former auto czar, told the Detroit Economic Club last week that the bailout will cost U.S. taxpayers about $14 billion. In addition to about $19 billion the government put into GM before the 09 filing, money that won't be recovered. Yet he considers the government's action an unambiguous success. And you called the auto bankruptcies the Obama administration's most notable policy achievement. So please explain why the bailouts may be worth it, yet still debatable. Well, it's a, it's a great question, Sam, and uh, I think that the answer is, is simply this: What what was the alternative? Um, the uh, I'm not sure about Steve Ratner's numbers exactly because some of the money uh, that has been uh, that that was uh, issued by the government to save General Motors was paid back uh, in the uh, initial public stock offering, and certainly Chrysler has repaid all of its loans. Uh, but there's still the taxpayers are going to lose some billions on this. There's there's no question about it. So it really comes down to the question of this. Here you are in the spring of 2009 when uh, the United States economy is in freefall. Uh, there's a crisis in the banking system. I mean the whole system just sort of uh, came to a uh, halt, if you will. And here you had General Motors and Chrysler. Uh, with a very real possibility of outright uh, liquidation. I mean, due to their own fault and due to the decades-long dysfunctional relationship between the United Auto Workers Union and the and the uh, car companies themselves. So, what do you, what do you do if you're the president of the United States in a situation like that? In November of 2008, the, the month that Obama was elected, but two months before uh, he took office. The U.S. economy shed uh, 533,000 jobs in that month alone. It was the single monthly largest job loss total in like 36 years. Um, so, I mean, you can basically take a chance and just say, look, we're just going to let this play out uh, the way it's going to play out, or, you know, government's got to intervene to uh, to stop this, this, not only just the, the liquidation of these companies, but more importantly, uh, the spillover and potential freefall effect on the entire U.S. economy. Um, so I would say that, you know, frankly, this is the Obama administration's um, uh, single most successful domestic policy success to date. I can't really think of many others. I mean, certainly it's too early to call the health care reform a success, and it's uh, you cannot call the 
um, uh, efforts to bring down unemployment much of a success. There have been uh, foreign policy successes uh, in the war on terror, but domestically it's hard to speak of another um, an, another program that's worked so well because these companies are alive, they're, they're doing well, they're employing people, um, uh, and they're actually thriving in some ways that was uh, very unlikely just a few years ago. So there appears to be a, a bounce back, as you noted. They, they uh, seem to be making real money again, uh, perhaps adopting a uh, lighter, leaner, better model. Is this real, in your opinion, as an observer of the business, and, and is it sustainable? Those are two different questions, Sam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it, it is real. Um, it, it, it is sustainable if they do it correctly. The question is, can they, can they do it correctly? It's a very tough, competitive global business. Um, so let's, let's talk to the real part first. I mean, uh, the company that's doing the best is the company that did not go through bankruptcy, and that's Ford Motor Company, which really had a, a two-year uh, head start on General Motors and Chrysler in reforming its own operations and downsizing its factories and uh, producing new new work rules in its factories and that sort of thing with, with its um, the members of the UAW. So all that all that really worked out um, uh, well for Ford. GM and Chrysler were a couple of years behind because they just their management wasn't as good uh, to be not anywhere near as good to be be blunt about it. Um, the question is whether it's sustainable, then, and that really depends on whether these companies can follow through on things. I mean, the, the success of this bailout, if you go back to a you know insolvency restructuring you know standpoint, was is that the Obama administration did not just throw money at the existing broken system; it insisted on real structural reforms. And this is through the Automotive Task Force led by Mr. Ratner and mm-hmm. Ron Bloom. It insisted on real structural reforms. Factories had to close. Workers lost their jobs. Executives got fired. Managers lost their jobs. The bloated managerial ranks got downsized. A lot of things happened to reform this system. Uh, it was painful. Uh, dealerships, uh, dealers lost their uh, their dealerships. I mean, a lot of painful things happened. Not to mention bondholders, you know, getting deep haircuts. Stockholders getting wiped out. Uh, a lot of pain that was spread. So I think the, uh, they really have been given a chance here. They are producing some, some good cars, some very good cars. And the other thing, let's not forget, uh, the Japanese competition has been hurt badly this year by two things. Uh, one is the, um, well, really three things. One is the very strong value of the Japanese yen, which makes Japanese exports to the United States much more expensive. The second thing is the disruption to their production system caused by the earthquake and tsunami of last March. And third, frankly, for, for you know different and various reasons, two of the leading Japanese car companies, Toyota and Honda, seem to have gotten very conservative in their styling and their product vision, and they're just not not the pace setters that they were, the clear pace setters they were in this industry uh, just a few years ago. So it's really created uh, quite an opening for the Detroit companies if they can take advantage of it. This is a, uh, a very global market, uh, as you noted, with respect to uh, Japan and the uh, bad uh, economics or challenging economics, I should say, of the auto business uh, clearly isn't confined uh, to the U.S. Uh, this week, Swedish automaker Saab, once a GM property, announced a bankruptcy filing uh, after uh, a plan to find a buyer failed. So is this 
more evidence that the global economy can be particularly judgmental about autos, or was there something else going on at Saab? Well, it's a it's a, it's a variety thing. I mean, I think first of all, um, uh, the lesson I really draw from Saab, Sam, is it's really hard to kill an automotive uh, nameplate. It's hard to kill a brand. Uh, Saab has been basically, uh, I'm sad to say, dead man walking for. Mm-hmm three or four years now, just a few years ago, I mean, they were selling in the U.S. 30,000 cars a year, which is the equivalent of, say, one week's production at a Ford or a Honda factory. Um, uh, it, it was a quirky brand, a uh, small, quirky niche brand to begin with, you know, beloved of those uh, Shakespeare professors who, you know, wore <laughs> tweed jackets with leather elbow package, uh, uh, patches and, you know, ships sherry in the faculty lounge, if you will. Mm -hmm. There's not that many of those people out there, are there? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, but a few years ago, I mean, I thought Mitsubishi Motors would be dead when they ran into a major financial crisis, and basically corporate Japan came in and sort of bailed them out. Uh, You know, uh, nothing against Mitsubishi, but I'm not sure the world needs, you know, a ninth Japanese car company. And um, look, uh, both of the Swedish car companies, uh, Saab and Volvo, had uh, didn't have the scale to survive on their own. Volvo was owned by Ford a, a few years ago, and Ford just said, "Look, we can't. We don't have the bandwidth to run this thing properly." It's now actually owned by Geely, uh, uh, a, a Chinese, a mm-hmm. interesting Chinese car company. But there was no comparable buyer to step forward with Saab, essentially, which had been owned by General Motors for the last decade or so of its existence. Uh, the last. Um, effort to save Saab seems to have fallen uh, uh, down. GM basically blocked um, uh, blocked this deal uh, because uh, there was Saab, you know, uh, engineering technology that was going to go to the Chinese, uh, Chinese, Chinese right. buyer, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. GM didn't want that um, uh, engineering technology to go into the Chinese maw, if you will, to come back right. and fight GM. Uh, but the truth is, Saab has been, you know, uh, on barely on life support for three or four years, Sam. And it's, it's sad. Every year in June, by the way, there's a, um, a show, a special automotive show in Ypsilanti, Michigan, just west of Detroit, called the Orphan Car Show. And Orphan Car Show is only for brands that have been dead five or more years. Uh, Plymouth, uh, Oldsmobile, Packard, going further back, Studebaker. Mm-hmm. So it looks like in a few years' time, five years' time, that Saab may be the latest addition to qualify for the Orphan Car Show, sadly. I drove some of those cars. I should go to it someday. <laughs> I bet, yeah, well, I mean, if you had a Hudson or a Packard or, uh, you know, well, or, a, uh, or a Nash Kelvinator, I mean, <laughs> a lot well, of Not so much that, but I did I did have a Plymouth Horizon once when I was a poor uh, law student. So. <laughs> oh, right. That was, the, that was the poor law student's car. I get either that or a Beetle. <laughs> Uh, so, in terms of the domestic auto industry, if you had to uh, imagine it as a uh, as a stock, is this a a buy, a sell, or a hold? In your opinion, um, it depends on the company. To be honest with you, I think uh, in, in Ford's case, uh, I think there's a good chance it's a buy. Uh, the company has really reduced its debt a lot. It's running very well. Uh, it's it's been laggard in getting off the ground in Asia and China, where GM has been ahead of Ford. But it's it's moving there to establish a very very strong presence. It's done very well in Latin America and even Europe, which is a mess right now, by the way. Um, uh, so I, I say that Ford 
the stock has come off its highs due to the due to lots of fears about the global economy and the euro and all that. So I, I'd say that it's a good case to be made that it's a buy on Ford. GM, hard to argue it's a buy right now, to be honest with you, because um, uh, I mean, a couple things. First of all, Opel is a mess. Uh, I mean, they're losing tons of money over in Europe on Opel, and they don't know what to do mm-hmm. about it. Uh, and that, that is a real problem. Um, also, don't forget, despite the IPO, uh, General Motor, lots of General Motors shares are still uh, in the hands of the U.S. Uh, government. And, and the Canadian government, I think, still owns some, too, although I'm not sure. But the U.S. government certainly does own a huge block of shares and wants to unload those shares at the appropriate time. So you have a huge sell overhang on the GM stock right now. So, uh, and also they have not done well in Latin America either, which is a critical emerging market, uh, Brazil especially. So I'd say, you know, I'm not sure I'd be a seller of GM stock if I owned it, but I certainly wouldn't be a buyer. Um, You know, and on Chrysler, you really can't buy the stock right now because it's, you know, they haven't done an IPO, um, essentially. So um, there's a lot of things. Chrysler's doing better, but there's a lot of things to be worked out with the fiat relationship. Uh, The interesting thing Mm -hmm. is that, Here's the fascinating thing about Fiat and Chrysler. Uh, Fiat came to Chrysler's rescue. The Automotive Task Force basically uh, delivered Chrysler into Fiat's hands because there was no other no other car company or anything in the entity in the world, industrial entity, that would touch Chrysler. Uh, now Fiat is really struggling. Chrysler is, seems to be doing pretty well. So the the, the the company that was rescued is now emerged as the stronger partner. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a big irony, frankly. What about um, uh, what about green technology? Is this uh, uh, going to be driving innovation uh, in the industry, or is this just central planning hype? Well, it already is driving innovation, but not not necessarily in the way you think. I mean, um, I think um, you know miles per gallon or liters per gallon is the conventional measure of fuel economy, and I think. Um, you know, hype per mile has got to be one of the one of the new metrics, if you will, because everybody's <laughs> hyping electrics and hybrids and all that sort of thing. And by the way, hybrids have a place. I'm not sure about electrics yet because no one can really get the battery range up to the kind of levels that I would consider, uh, frankly, driving an electric vehicle or buying and owning an electric vehicle, um, unless it's just a car that you drive to the train station a couple miles and back. But the... Um, um, the the real fascinating work on on um, technology and green technology in cars, Sam, is what we at Reuters uh, called in a recent article the revenge of the internal combustion engine. Uh, and there's a whole new generation of internal combustion engines uh, out there now, uh, with have elect- modern electronic engine controls, lightweight materials, um, uh, stop start technology at stop signs and stop lights and all that sort of thing. Um, that are capable of, uh, of getting, they're in cars that get more than 40 miles a gallon on the highway. So, for example, the Chevrolet Cruze, which is a, a, a one of, I think it's GM's single best-selling model, uh, the Chevrolet Cruze uh, Eco, with the Eco engine, gets um, uh, 42 miles a gallon on the highway, yet it costs two-thirds to half, a half to two-thirds as much as the much-hyped Chevy Volt. So, and the, and the Chevy Volt, by the way, gets a U.S. taxpayer subsidy of $7,000 per vehicle, which is, I think, it's pretty obscene, frankly, for a, a nation that is, is in deeply as in debt as we are. So my answer is, if you can get 42 miles a gallon on the highway in, a, in, a, in an internal combustion engine, um, what's the, why do you need the Chevy Volt? 
Mm-hmm. And there are really about 20 models on the road right now, a couple dozen, almost a couple dozen models, Fords, Hyundais, GMs, Hondas, um, uh, Toyotas that can get, um, you know, 40 miles a gallon from internal combustion engines. Now, I think hybrids are a different story. They are. I mean, the Prius has been a success. Toyota is, um, is expanding the Prius to uh, make it a whole lineup of cars with a station wagon and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think hybrids have a legitimate future, but do not rule out the internal combustion engine here. Interesting. So what what do you think are the lessons uh, from the uh, auto uh, crisis uh, for other U.S. manufacturers? Particularly, can you imagine another situation of government intervention on this scale in another industry of sort of central importance to the U.S. economy? Could this, could this recur? Could it happen again? Well, I guess I'd never say never, Sam, but I think it's, uh, it's very hard to see this happening uh, without um, some really extraordinary circumstances. One would be the entire U.S. economy is in crisis and the tension to go from the Great uh, Recession into a new depression. And that clearly existed back in 2009. I think, second of all, uh, and this is hard to quantify, but there's, um, there's got to be some sort of an emotional, uh, uh, some sort of an emotional uh, tie from Americans to this, to whatever industry you're talking about. I mean, with the exception of the banking industry, because you know we all depend on banking and credit, and you can't really run an economy without that. But but look at it this way: I mean, the the, the banking uh, bailout. Uh, cost the American taxpayers seven or eight times as much as it did the the, uh, the Detroit bailout. Yet the Detroit bailout it got far more more attention, if you will, in many ways. Uh, and I think that's because automobiles are so much part of the American experience and the American soul. I mean, you know, you can go back to songs from the '60s, such as "Shut Down," which was not about a the Beach Boy song in 1963. It was. Not about a bank closing. It, it was really, uh, it was about a, a drag race, okay? Um, uh, Wilson Pickett in 1966 sang uh, Mustang Sally. He didn't sing Mustang Sally May. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> nobody wrote songs about banks. Um, right. So I think, you know, the, the combination of, a, um, of, a, um, of an industry with, you know, in an economy in free fall, an industry that's visible and has some emotional ties to the country, and frankly, an industry that's got a lot of political clout, if you will, in various ways, the companies, the United Auto Workers Union, that sort of thing. Those were a, 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 I'm not sure they were a unique set of circumstances, but they were an extremely rare set of circumstances. So uh, carpocalypse not likely to recur in some other industry, airlines or well, we, we did bail out the airline industry, don't forget, after after 9-11. Remember when nobody was flying anymore and all that sort of thing? But it was a different kind of a program. There were loans uh, that were there were loans that were paid back and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I think if the entire airline system was, you know, under the, under the um, brink of collapse and people had to um, face the prospect of getting from New York to Los Angeles by car, uh, there might be some sort of intervention because that would really bring uh, the economy to a halt. But uh, this is not the – I wouldn't take too much comfort in this if I was a, if I was a business executive or a union uh, official. And don't forget, what made this thing go was the enormous amount of sacrifice that was required, in fact, insisted on from everybody involved. I mean, dealers, 
workers, executives, managers, bondholders, shareholders, everybody gave it the office here, Sam. Right. To your really excellent question of what are the chances of this happening again, the Obama administration did not want to do this. I mean, this was not like uh, a new president saying, gee, this is a chance to grab uh, control over some major segment of the American economy. I mean, his attitude was basically like, uh, the, the administration's attitude was, you know, gee, we just, we don't have much choice. It's sort of like, you know, um, uh, changing a diaper. You just got to hold your nose and do it, but it's got to be done. Probably a one-off uh, situation. Uh, yeah, or, or extremely rare. I mean, don't forget, it was done under, under different circum, in, in a different method in Chrysler in, in 1980, but it, very different circumstances and a very different method. There were it was not government money that went into that. It was government-guaranteed loans. Uh, the mm-hmm. government never put out a penny, actually. In fact, in the 1980 Chrysler bailout led by Lee Iacocca, the government actually made money uh, because in return for the loan guarantees, um, uh, the government got warrants on Chrysler stock, which went from 2 to about 80 um, You know, in, in, the, in the early to mid-80s as the economy rebounded and Chrysler enjoyed success by inventing the minivan. Um, so the, government, the taxpayers did well on that one. Well, Americans love their cars, and, and you know better than uh, uh, than most uh, folks. Um, tell, uh, what's your uh, new project, uh, your, your new book project, and what's the uh, what's the status of that? Uh, the status of it is it's, it's going to be published on uh, May first by Simon and Schuster. Sam, the book is called Engines of Change, and it's about the fifteen cars that helped to shape American life and thought. So. Um, it really traces the evolution of modern culture through the cars. So, for example, um, you know, one of the fun chapters I had uh, I had writing a lot of fun with this was the chapter on uh, pickup trucks, really built around the Ford F series. And it was interesting how pickup trucks and country music began to go from the fringes into the American mainstream about the same time, really in the 1970s. Um, and uh, so, the, the, it it really um, it also gave me a chance to write about my uh, favorite all-time country music song by Joe Diffie, which is uh, Leroy the Redneck Reindeer. Uh, <laughs> which is a, just listen to it sometime; <laughs> you'll love it. Um, no, and um, you know, the, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, Pickup Man. Uh, Pickup Man was <laughs> another Joe Diffie Joe song. Diffie. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> another, that's also in the book, by the way. Uh, it's also in the book. Pickup Man, with its obvious double entendre, is, is in the book. Got it. Uh, uh, the whole yuppie, the whole yuppie phenomenon was captured by nothing as much as the um, uh, the BMW um, 3 Series in the 80s, when the yuppies became the rage. Uh, there was a um, uh, a group out in San Francisco that had a tongue-in-cheek yuppie cotillion. Um, and they, so they unauthorized, they, they, uh, had unauthorized use of the BMW logo, which they, uh, said, uh, stood for beauty, money, and wealth. And the, uh, suggested, uh, dress for the, uh, yuppie cotillion was black tie with Nikes. Um, so this whole sort of yuppie scene was, uh, uh, uh sort of a fun thing to write about. And the Chrysler minivan, uh, which really, uh, defined the whole soccer mom phenomenon of the nineties, um, it was fascinating if you go back in the, the 96 presidential election between uh, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, um, the New York Times and other papers sent reporters out around the country to interview minivan-driving mothers at soccer games and asking them, what, what does it feel like to be a political force this year? And my favorite <laughs> response came from one mom who said, um, you know, look, i, I got to go home and thaw something for dinner. I just don't have time to be a political force today. <laughs> so, 
I really try to really capture the texture of what these cars symbolized and mean, uh, meant. And um, one of the saddest chapters, actually, was the Chevy Corvair, uh, which I think was a, had a remarkable impact on American life and society. I mean, it really, um, uh, for purposes of your members, it created one of the greatest growth industries of the late 20th century, which was lawsuits, because all of products liability law was, was mm-hmm. basically redefined uh, by the Corvair. It made Ralph Nader famous. Um, and, and by doing so, uh, the Corvair, which actually was killed by General Motors in uh, 1969 or 70, um, I think it was 1669, um, the Corvair actually helped to make George W. Bush the president of the United States 30 years later in the year 2000. And the reason is, is that the Corvair um, was the car that made Nader famous. He would have been a nobody without that right. car. Because right. he wrote the book, Unsafe at Any Speed, right. that exposed the car, and right. GM spied on him and publicly apologized to him in front of a congressional committee. Uh, but um, uh, Ralph Nader got 90,000 votes in the state of Florida in the year 2000, a state that George W. Bush won by only 1,800 votes, according to right. the Supreme Court. Uh, most of those votes uh, almost surely would have gone to Al Gore. Um, right. So... Um, the uh, the Corvair had a very long and lasting and profound influence on American life. No question. Uh, well, engines have changed. We look forward to uh, seeing that new uh, book out. And Paul, thanks again for sharing your uh, keen uh, insights on the, this uh, vital industry and the future, and for being our guest today. Thanks a lot. Delighted to be with you, Sam, and uh, enjoy the holidays, please. Likewise, and. For those listening, remember you can listen to or download more than 100 podcasts on our website, which is abi.org. Until next time, uh, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.